My name's Imelda Wheelahan. I'm the Dean of the Graduate Research School here at the University of Western Australia, and I'm relatively new arrival to Perth. I've been here nearly a year now. Um, as Fiona also said, I'm also continuing as best I can my research in my fields of interest. So I'm absolutely delighted to be here this morning for this special edition of Breakfast by the Bay, marking International Women's Day 2020, which has the theme, Each for Equal. This year, in February, the university community learnt that UWA had been awarded one of 11 internationally recognised Athena Swan Bronze Awards for its commitment to gender diversity in the STEM subjects of science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine. That's part of the Science in Australia Gender Equality Initiative in which many universities are participating, but not all are successful. To achieve the award, organisations are accredited based on their work to increase career satisfaction and opportunities, improve working practices to support career progression and increase visibility of women in science and the proportion of women, particularly in the STEM disciplines. This recognition is important to a university such as ours, which continues to strive to develop an inclusive and diverse workforce and reflect what inclusivity and diversity means in our daily work practices. International Women's Day, always on the 8th of March, has a long history and its themes have been infinitely varied, from suffrage to equality through to intersectionality and this year back to equality again. It allows us to reflect on and celebrate what women have achieved as well as to acknowledge what still needs to be done to build a more egalitarian society. In meeting today, we acknowledge a shared responsibility for the future of gender equality and inclusivity more broadly. 2020 marks the 50th anniversary of the first National Women's Liberation Movement Conference in the UK, which is where I was originally from. And it also marked the rise of similar movements across Europe and Australasia and across the globe. 1970, I'm that age, is a particular landmark in my personal history and marks my first glimpse of a rather unladylike protest accidentally televised globally because it happened during the Miss World Beauty Contest. Too young to really understand what I was seeing, that moment of feminist theatre stayed with me and ret re returned with a changing symbolic force during my years as a PhD student, researching the multiple political and philosophical foundations of mid-20th century feminism. And for many years after, it was my privilege to demystify that still dominant image of the bra-burning, man-hating feminist who was seen to typify membership of the women's liberation movement and to show students that these women's primary concerns actually closely chimed with their own. Equality was at the heart of that movement 50 years ago, but that optimism for utopian change and collective action was disrupted as the question was asked, equality with who? Not all women are the same. The theme of today's breakfast panel discussion, each for equal, bravely takes up this gauntlet once more. It suggests individual responsibility and also the power of collective action. It's a complex theme, and I look forward 
to enjoying the ensuing discussion. But before that part of the event begins in earnest, I'd like to introduce Jill Benn, the UWA University Librarian. Jill will facilitate our discussion this morning with a panel of UWA graduates, and they will tackle some important and engaging topics. Jill's portfolio includes library information and records management services across the UWA campus. She has significant leadership experience in higher education and currently serves as chair of the peak body for academic libraries in Australia, the Council of Australian University Librarians. She's also a board director for the International Association of University Libraries and the Research Data Alliance. Jill's commitment to high quality support of academic learning and a student experience has been recognized recently through the award of Principal Fellowship of the Higher Education Academy, the most prestigious award in this area. She's also a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Please join me in welcoming Jill. Uh, thank you, Melda, uh, and good morning, everybody, and, and happy International Women's Day. Uh, so, as Melda said, it gives me great pleasure to be moderating uh, this morning's very excellent uh, and well-established panel. So, what I'm going to do is ask the panelists to come uh, up to the the stage. So, if you wouldn't mind joining me now, and I'll introduce them as they come up. So um, I'm going to start um, to my far left. Um, so Fio Dr. Fiona McGaughy is a senior lecturer and director of higher degrees coursework here at the law school. Um, she co-convenes the UWA Modern Slavery Research Cluster and she's a member of the Law Council of Australia's Business and Human Rights Committee. So Fiona initially worked in management consulting in the private sector before moving to semi-state and not-for-profit research and policy roles. Uh, and her research interests include international human rights law and modern slavery. Please welcome Fiona. Next we have Sandra Brewer, who is the West Australian Executive Director of the Property Council of Australia. Uh, Sandra is committed to not only being a strong advocate uh, for the members of the Property Council, but indeed the pro broader property industry. Prior to commencing in this role, Sandra was a communications and marketing executive in a range of sectors and Sandra believes that leaders should be driven to create change beyond the four walls of their organisations. Uh, and I think that it's tremendous that she's here volunteering at this event because it really shows that she really uh, lives this vision. Uh, Sandra holds a Bachelor of Commerce, so please welcome Sandra. Um, next we have Preeti Castle. So Preeti is the Strategic Engagement Director at the West Australian Biodiversity Science Institute uh, where she's been working for the last three years to help this new institute um, to be a great success. Preeti began her career in the financial services sector in developing and implementing marketing and communication strategies before progressing to a range of senior roles. Preeti also established her own consulting firm and has worked with a range of national and international organisations uh, to improve communications and establish new markets. 
Preeti holds two degrees from UWA, a Bachelor of Arts and an MBA, and she's a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. So welcome, Preeti. And last, but certainly no means least, is Chris Sutherland. So Chris is an experienced executive who's held um, a variety of senior management positions nationally and internationally in various engineering, maintenance and contracting businesses. Most recently, Chris was the managing director and group CEO of Programmed, a leading staff maintenance and facility management service provider. Uh, and he was in this role from 2008 until his retirement in September last year. Chris is a champion for gender equity, having founded and chaired the Perth-based group CEOs for Gender Equity, and in November 2017 was awarded the Australian Human Resources Institute CEO Diversity Champion Award. Chris holds a UWA Bachelor of Engineering and he's also completed the Advanced uh, management program at the Harvard Business School. So please welcome Chris. So I'm going to, to join the, the panel now. Um, and we're going to have a series of questions. And I'm actually going to start um, by asking the panel if you can just have a think about this year's theme, Each for Equal, and in your own words, what that, that theme means to you. Chris, we'll, we'll start with you. Well, simply to me, I, I think that if you've got uh, two people, let's say a man and a woman, that make the same kind of effort and input into their work, into their family and the community through 40, 50 years, you would expect them to have equitable outcomes at the end of their life and unfortunately that isn't the case. You know, you've got you know, half the female population that's uh, finishing work this year, you know, have superannuation accounts balances that are often five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars and yet um, um, they've made the same contribution to their family and to the community and to society uh, as, as their male counterpart, but there's a big imbalance there. So I think there's lots of ways to think about it, but I think about it is, is that if you've got two people making the same effort, making the same contribution, you'd want more equitable outcome than Carol is at the moment, and it's, it's very much uh, out of balance at the moment, so it is not each for equal right now. But uh, obviously I think it's important for society that we do achieve some semblance of equality when it comes to that particular outcome by itself. Thank you. Preeti? Um, I think, Jill, for me, it's, um, it's very much uh, about an individual um, choice uh, as to how we behave and, and, and how we support both men and women. Um, and I think really it's about valuing women's contribution, their skills, uh, their efforts, both uh, in the home and in the workplace, um, on its own merit. So I think quite often we fall into the trap, uh, regardless of gender, of benchmarking women's achievements and success against that of men. Um, so I think for me, each equal is really about uh, valuing the individual's contribution. Um, and I think also it's about, um, I guess as Chris has already said, each of us being champions and supporting uh, women. And uh, to me, Again, you know, I love to boil these things down to an individual level because there's so much as one person that we can do. So it's not just about the sort of systematic strategic changes uh, that take place across, you know, um, governments and corporations, but it's also um, how we choose to support and mentor uh, our colleagues, our friends, 
Uh, and sometimes that informal mentor mentoring and support can make a world of difference, whether it's um, creating an environment where you know a, a woman feels comfortable enough to walk into a room, into a meeting, and to be able to speak up uh, without thinking you know, she needs to behave a certain way or say certain things. Um, and I think that's really important, and that's a responsibility, a shared responsibility, as, as Melda had said in her opening remarks, that um, both, you know, regardless of gender, we all have to um, kind of contribute to that. Okay, thank you. Sandra? Um, well, each for equal to me means rededicating ourselves to each um, pursuing equality. And I think International Women's Day each year is a good reminder of rededicating ourselves to that cause. And there, you know, for each of us, we have a different appetite for how much we're willing to get out there and either disrupt the current systems or challenge um, the systems that are in place. And um, I certainly consider myself to have less courage than a lot of people. I notice there's two impressive Sues here with us today, Sue Boyd and Sue Murphy, who have, you know, are very courageous in uh, what they've said. And I you know, have a different appetite for courage, but each for equal says each of us have to do something. We have to act in a way that is going to bring equality. So um, little examples of that for me in my own work is um, we have a commitment to 40, 40, 20 representation across all of our panels and committees. Um, it is so easy to put a panel together of 90% men, you know, 80% men. It is just natural. You go to the leaders of organisations and you ask them to be on a panel. But each time you've got to have the courage to say, no, I really need to not ask that person. I need to seek out a new person. It creates more work for you. Um, it's harder to do. Um, yesterday I had to write to a CEO of a leading organisation and apologise and say, look, I'm sorry, but I'm going to ask, could you please replace yourself on the panel with a woman? That's hard to do, you know, it would have just been easier not to send that email and to invite him along. Um, so that's what it's about for me, each dedicating ourselves to equality. Thank you. And Fiona? Um, yeah, look, it's, it's interesting to see how International Women's Day has become really quite popular and there's some really successful branding around that, such as Each for Equal. Um, but the actual official United Nations theme is a bit less catchy, and that is generation equality, realising women's rights. Um, and I think that's really important because it is about human rights. And it was specifically chosen to mark the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Platform for Action and Declaration, which was you know, really quite radical at, at that time, and it provided an international roadmap for the empowerment of women. So I think we need to keep in mind that it is about women's rights as human rights. Now, having said that, each for equal I quite like as a, as a catchphrase because it touches on both the individual, but I think it also acknowledges the importance of the collective. And anything that has been achieved, I think, has been largely due to collective action um, as well as what individuals have done. And I think it, it also acknowledges that gender equality um, can mean different things to different women. And, and that's always been a struggle for feminism, I think, is how do we incorporate all of these different um, ideas and, and aspirations that women have from all the various parts of the world into one uh, overarching theme. So um, it's a good start, I think. Great, thank you. 
So one of the things that's been talked about in this, in the context of this, this year's theme is empowerment. Um, and Preeti, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this and, and how we can really empower both men and women um, to operate in a more equitable way in the workplace and beyond. Uh, well, I'd like to think the empowerment um, starts young and, and I think really uh, it has to be a cultural mind shift that we need to um, instill at a very young age. Um, for example, I have a son and a daughter. Um, for them, in their teenage years, you know, these issues of gender equality, they should be a non-issue by the time they get to the workplace. And I think it's our collective responsibility to be good role models for both our sons and daughters. Um, our daughters, our sisters need confidence, they need, um, they need visualisation. And I think that, for me, for example, has been a really powerful tool uh, and it's not just about seeing someone on the TV, you know, who's a CEO or a sports star. Uh, it's actually um, being able to uh, visualise a very practical and achievable and realistic pathway through um, skills, whether it's through the tertiary study or through, uh, you know, later in life upskilling, going back to work after you've had children. So it's all of those things that kind of cascades if you start at an early age. And, and I think it's equally important to empower young men. They are the leaders of tomorrow. They are the employees and employers of tomorrow. Um, and they, you know, they, they have sisters, they have friends, they have mothers, grandmothers who, um, who have stories to tell about uh, instances where they perhaps have not been treated equally or their contributions haven't been valued. And I think as they listen to those stories, uh, I'd like to think that we can build the kind of empathy and understanding in our young men. And I do think we have to move the conversation beyond telling men what they're doing wrong. Uh, I think it's really about time we empowered young men and men women with uh, the how-to, the kind of strategies that they can use as an individual uh, to make a difference in the home um, and in the workplace. Uh, and I think uh, I'd like to think uh, each of us has the power to kind of future-proof the next generation. So we are celebrating by the time our children get to the workplace that there is equality and uh, an equal value placed on the contributions regardless of gender. Thanks, Preeti, and um, thank you for being such a good role model. I know your daughter um, is here in the audience the, this morning, so, so thank you. Does anyone else want to comment on, on empowerment and how we can see that play out? My, I guess my, my only quick comment there is that I feel like that conversation was held a generation ago and young people today, and certainly with my kids are all in the workforce now, I think they, they kind of had an ex expectation of things being more equal when they arrived at the workplace than they found it. So they didn't think there was a problem in the world until they hit the workplace. <laughs> and they went, oh, this is quite different. So I think that uh, there is that, still that challenge. So empowerment's one thing. Uh, most girls grow up believing that they can do anything they want. But what, what they find right is, is that over, you know, over a period of time, things get chipped away um, uh, around what they should and shouldn't do and, and, and a number of them start folding that, that way rather than you know, having the courage to, to resist that, if you like. And then secondly, you know, there are still the, the whole issues of obviously uh, uh, lack of respect 
harassment and, and, and domestic violence that, that many young women start being introduced to as they turn to adulthood. So I feel like uh, um, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. I think that it's really good that uh, young girls do believe that they can do anything. Uh, what we need now is change a number of elements of the systems of work for businesses. Mm. As well as in society, I think, we do need to make some changes to actually have, have them actually be able to fulfil that potential that they clearly have. Because at the moment, statistically, you know, uh, things aren't changing as fast as I think young people would expect them to, to mm. change. Thank you. Sandra? Um, yeah, I, I think you're right, Chris. It's, uh, you know, we are in a um, period of change um, and for many of us that's not moving as quickly as we'd like. And um, there's a quote from Liz Broderick that says, unless we actively and intentionally include women, the system will unintentionally exclude them. And I think that that really sums up what's happening in the workplace, is that there's always this tendency for the pendulum to swing back to what was normal for so long, um, but we need to keep pushing it forward. And I think there are good systems in place in most um, leading organisations now. Uh, naturally, we've um, you know talked about the role of small business and said, well, you know, it, it's harder for that to filter through to to some levels of um, the community. But in big business, there are clear um, system-changing initiatives in place, uh, like 40-40-20 in the property industry. And there are places where you know there's been absolute triumphs and um, leading organisations like Stockland, for example, from their board, all of their leadership positions, um, executive committees have achieved 40% female executives. And you know we're talking about property and construction. You know, once upon a time. It would never have been like that. Mm. So it does feel like a big achievement, um, but it just requires that consistent energy to change the systems as fast as we can manage. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, look, I think everyone's painted a really good picture in terms of the corporate world, and I would agree with all of that. I think the only thing I would add is that um, as a society, we just don't value the types of work that women um, do more commonly than men. And so that's reflected in... Uh, the lower paid sectors, childcare, ed, you know, primary education, nursing, things like that. We don't value that work um, in the same way as we do the, this sort of male-dominated industries. And we, we really don't value the immense unpaid work that women tend to do in society. And that's you know, childcare and housework and caring for elderly parents and caring for family members with disabilities um, and all of the volunteering in the community. Um, and that isn't supported by our tax and our social security systems and all of that. So there certainly is a system issue as well in terms of, of the valuing of women's work. Mm, thank you. So Sandra, you talked a bit about systems um, and norms and I wonder if you can expand a bit on whether you think that they're really, um, the systems in norm and norms which historically have been quite entrenched mm. in, in inequality uh, and whether they're as strong as they used to be, you know, talked about the, the Stockland change, but mm. if you can reflect a bit more on that, and I'm really interested in the panel's view on whether you've all worked in a variety of sectors, whether, you know, the sectors uh, are different. Mm. Um, yeah, well, I perhaps I'll come across today as an optimist, and I am really um, pleased by the change that I've seen in my career, and you just sort of have to reflect 
uh, back on, you know, how much dads were involved in parenting versus how much they are these days. And it is more and more common to find stay-at-home dads, um, plenty of dads at school pickup, uh, workplaces that are flexibly, um, you know, operating so um, whichever parent it is can do school drop-off and pickup. Um, I think, you know, a good test of this, my husband is a, a registered builder, a carpenter. He's been on building sites for, you know, nearly 30 years. You know, when he started out, there was, um, you know, boozing on the site in the afternoons. The, the Christmas party was getting some strippers to the building site. I mean, this is awful stuff. Um, it's 25 years ago. And now, you know, I said, what's it like these days? And he said, no, oh, well, everyone has to get home. You know, everyone, the tradies take off at three to get the kids from school. Um, that's my best tip, marry a tradie, because uh, <laughs> they, uh, they do start at 7am and uh, they finish at 3, but, you know, there's so many senior women that I meet with, I mean, I was really impressed recently, um, we all met for Friday night drinks at Steve's Hotel, and I thought, how, gosh, how weird is this, all these business women standing around having a beer together on a Friday afternoon, you know, can you imagine walking into Steve's 30 years ago and seeing that? Uh, so that's it's good change, I think, and uh, certainly you know I have a role in the media, and when I stand alongside the executive director of the HIA and um, the MBA, Rewa, um, uh, who've I missed, UDIA, the three of us out of the five executive directors of industry bodies are, are women. You know, mm. it's really changed the balance. Mm. That's a positive view. Thank you. <laughs> Fiona, do you have any yeah, thoughts? Well, I've worked across a few sectors, um, and I think the university sector in terms of gender equality has been my best experience uh, so far, and there are lots of really positive initiatives. Imelda mentioned some of them. I think in terms of uh, structures, a, a key issue that we have within Australia is that um, even though we've made international commitments to human rights, we don't, we're the only Western democracy not to have a Bill of Rights. And so that means that women's rights and everyone's rights are not protected in the same way as they are in many other uh, developed countries. Um, and so although we have piecemeal protections like the Sex Discrimination Act and Equality Acts at state and territory level, um, for example, they don't deal well with intersectionality because women are not just women, they have all of their other identities around perhaps Aboriginality, their religion, ethnicity, ability or disability, family status, and until we have a comprehensive uh, law that can deal with that, then where we experience really harsh inequality is often at those intersections. So I'm thinking of things like the shameful over-incarceration of Indigenous women and the knock-on impact on their families and their communities, forced sterilisation of girls and women with disabilities in Australia. So often at the intersections is where uh, are most vulnerable are affected and I think in terms of systems and structures um, actually looking for things like a federal bill of rights would be a really positive step forward. Okay, thank you. Chris or Preeti? Yeah, look, uh, I'll, I'll kind of just comment a bit more about where I started today and that is that I do think that whilst we've got, I think, some big improvements in the way many organisations work and, and are focused on you know, improving their, their profile and the, if you like, the gender balance of uh, women in all, all occupations that might exist within a firm, um, there still is 
the whole issue of what happens when families are involved and uh, and it's the sharing responsibilities is proportional. I mean, it, I don't think we're necessarily going to change that to 50-50. It is always the case, I think, that a woman is going to give birth to a child and take that initial responsibility. And during that period of time, um, there's a disconnect between how they're treated in incomes and how they're treated when they come back to work. And uh, that has not been solved yet. Um, and uh, I think that that's a, a pretty critical point. It's about valuing that time. Um, I used to say to some of my HR people that, you know, when when a person, a particular woman, uh, has one or two years off uh, while off, off their paid work while they're raising a child, and we should see it like they've just done an MBA at Harvard or something, you know, in such a, rather than when they come back, see it like, well, look, that person's now there and this person is here, we should say, no, no, we've got to look at it differently. Um, as well as the fact that I think, and I, this is where I think government intervention is required probably, I think the superannuation system needs to change a bit and just recognise, and there has to be, I think, you know, a similar payment as if they were working yep. while, while you're looking at, you're the primary carer, you should have that such that your retirement income does not change as a result of you doing a fantastic thing for the country, if, if you like, and for that family unit. I agree. It's a free choice. We want people, men and women, in any relationships uh, uh, to, to really uh, make a choice about how children are raised. But if there's a person who says, I'm giving up work, I'm going to be the primary caregiver, and that can be a man or a woman, um, then I think they shouldn't have a disadvantage in their retirement. Yeah, I think there's, um, I think there's, I guess, valid points made by everybody, and I think, uh, to Fiona's point, um, we do undervalue the contributions of women as primary carers in, in many instances, uh, but I also think the conversation needs to move beyond uh, just looking at women through the lens of, of being a carer, and uh, by that I don't um, I'm still attaching a high value to it. I've been a carer, I've been a, you know, I'm a mother. But I do think there's more to women than just that phase in their, of their lives. And we face challenges uh, at all stages, whether you're in your 20s, 40s, uh, whether you're returning to work after you've had children, or even in your 50s, uh, in terms of upskilling uh, and, and keeping a job into your retirement years. So I think, um, it is good to change uh, the systems and the frameworks, but I think really it all comes back to the individual and uh, helping to change the norms and create that new normal. Uh, so I agree with Sandra in that we, each of us has to speak up to make sure there's equal um, representation of women on panels. Uh, I've been in meetings where I'm the only female in the room or if there is another female, I do feel the responsibility of making sure that I bring her into the conversation, and we've all been there where you know you say something and it sort of gets ignored, and two minutes later, uh, a male says it, and everyone goes, "Oh, what a great idea that is!" Um, so you know that stuff still happens, and in the scheme of the big sweeping changes, that might sound very little, but I actually do think it's the little everyday things that make uh, a massive amount of difference uh, to someone's self-confidence and their ability and willingness to uh, put their hand up and say, I can do this job. Uh, I mean, just from my own experience, um, uh, you know, 20 years ago, I applied for a senior role and I was told, uh, I'm sorry, I don't think it will be a good look for the company to have a female in this role. 
Uh, and that was in the financial services sector. That was 20 years ago. Uh, a lot's changed since then. Um, a few years ago, uh, talking to uh, an executive recruitment firm, the advice I got from them was, oh, don't worry about the maternity break. Just don't mention it. Just, just keep talking. So the perceptions are changing, um, and it's different in dif different industries. Um, I work in the science research sector, and obviously there's a huge push to get uh, girls and women into uh, the STEM industry. So change is slow, but I think, as Sandra mm -hmm. said, we have to be optimistic and celebrate uh, those successes and those milestones. Um, and I think the biggest hurdle we face is uh, when we, we talk about, um, are we talking about equality and representation just in terms of numbers? Uh, because I do know uh, many men feel, well, are we trading numbers for merit? And whilst you know that's a whole discussion in itself, I think having that awareness um, of making sure that Yes, you have merit and skills, but there are many people, men and women, with that level of skill and who equally deserve to be in the room. So let's make sure that we do have 50-50. Thank you. So you've all in some way touched on education and the importance um, of education in changing some of the, the inequality that we face. Um, Fiona, I'm interested in asking you what role UWA plays and, and even the education sector more broadly um, in facilitating gender equity? Uh, well, look, I think it's critical. Um, I'm really glad to see some of our students and graduates here today, and we're really proud of our women students and graduates, and also our men, because we do try to uh, create that environment of gender equity in the classroom. Um, education globally is just essential in terms of achieving equality. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the work of Graduate Women WA. I know some of their members might be here this morning. And um, they're associated with Graduate Women International. So they've got a very strong focus on um, education for women and girls. There are many millions of women, girls across the world who um, don't have access to education. Some of them will never set foot in a classroom. So lots of people do really important work in that area. Uh, graduate women also uh, locally provide bursaries. Um, I was lucky to receive one when I was a PhD student here. That enabled me to go to Geneva and do field work that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do um, and help me develop skills and, and networks. So there's lots of really important work being done, I think. Uh, just anecdotally, one thing I would say is to, to uh, confirm what some of the other speakers have said is there is a tendency for, for women in the classroom not to speak up as much as men um, and that's something, a pattern that I've noticed um, over a number of years and I think we need to tackle those types of uh, common issues. So in terms of what universities could do, so obviously our role as educators is primary but we also have a role as researchers and I think we're very privileged in that regard and we should be using our research skills and, and resources and capabilities to tackle contemporary issues such as gender equality. And you know, many of my colleagues undertake really complex and important research you know, across things like gender equality in the workplace, um, violence against women, um, and incarceration of indigenous women, all of these really important questions. And I think that's um, essential that we do that. And I hope that those who fund the research also recognize the importance of that because we do need support for the work that we do. 
Um, within the group that I'm involved with, the Modern Slavery Research Cluster, we know that modern slavery disproportionately affects women and girls, and that is a, an issue particularly in the Asia-Pacific region. It happens in Australia. We've seen cases in the agricultural industry, for example. Um, we've got forced marriage. There are all of these issues, but it does take, these are really complex challenges, and it does take a really concerted um, and interdisciplinary challenge. So I think universities have a really important dual role, both as educators, but also as, as researchers. Thank you. It's, it's tremendous to have some of your insight into your research, so thank you. Um, the rest of the panel, the role of education in, in changing gender equality? Chris, let's start <laughs> I'm with you. No, I'm, Chris. I'm wanting to hear a woman's voice. <laughs> right. <laughs> Good. Good on you. Go, Pretty. <laughs> I think... Um, I think it does start in the classroom. Uh, I did my MBA here and... It was a fantastic course, but I would have loved to have seen um, more discussion around the how-to um, and embedding that and not having that as a separate, you know, this is a thing that you must do and this is what men do wrong. I think it kind of needs to be a conversation that's embedded, doesn't matter what the discipline of study is, whether it's a, it's a business degree or an engineering degree, because uh, I think that's kind of how you get cut through. It becomes a new normal, it becomes changes the conversation. Um, I don't know what the answer is, what this how-to manual will look like, but I think, uh, you know, it's as Fiona said, it's uh, starting in the classroom with the culture of making sure everyone does speak up and you, you know, you don't have um, the same voices drowning out what others have to contribute. Uh, and with our researchers and our lecturers also leading by example in terms of valuing the contributions equally, uh, but also skilling our future uh, leaders and, and employers with the ability to be able to see things differently and to kind of change that lens um, so that we are hopefully, by the, by the time the next generation gets to the workplace, we have less of or no subconscious bias in terms of you know, hiring people that are just like us and sound like us and um, think like us and, and of course you know we're all about innovation now aren't we so uh, we need that diversity of, uh, of background and gender and ages to be able to filter from the classroom at university level into the workplace and beyond. Thank you. Sandra? Um, look the, the role of education is to provide opportunity to people and I think that that um, doesn't change throughout your life. I've, think, you know, we do a good job at high school of encouraging um, girls onto further education and that's, uh, we really do a very good job of that in Australia across, you know, socioeconomic groups. Um, girls or boys that do well academically are encouraged to continue their education. Um, I certainly had that opportunity. I grew up on a dairy farm and no one in my family had ever been to university and when I came to UWA, I didn't even really know what university was. I, we didn't have Google. I couldn't do any research in advance. And, you know, it was extremely overwhelming. It was f completely foreign. Um, 
I remember all of the uni college students started talking about Prosh, Prosh is coming up, how good is Prosh? And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell is Prosh? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, just, I was too frightened to ask anyone what it was. But, you know, it's that fish out of water situation now. And I think that that continues. And maybe there's a role for UWA to sort of continue to explore, you know, what is the balance of genders in their postgraduate programs? Um, an MBA is something that, you know, still to this day, I think, oh, an MBA is not for me. I don't know. You know, mm. that sounds tricky and challenging and I'll just leave that to someone else to do. Um, so what role um, can people involved in university leadership um, as postgraduate or MBA graduates themselves, you know, reach out to other female executives and say, if further education creates more opportunity for you because I think that's something that men innately get. I've seen the, the blokes ahead of them um, take exactly that path. Um, but it's a path less trodden for a lot of women. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'll just quickly <laughs> add that I, yeah. I think that one area is in, in you know, secondary education. We need, we need to be aiming for gender balance across all subject areas. In other words, currently there are some subjects, say specialist maths, where there's a two to one uh, boys to girls ratio this year doing uh, year 12, right? Um, and I think that unless we achieve that balance there, inequities will then continue for the next 20 to 30 years. Uh, there was a, a very major study done which really showed that the, the average level attainment of maths between girls and boys at year 12 was singularly the biggest determining factor of, of 10 different factors they looked at, at, at the percentage of male and female leaders within, that country, within, within the country, if you like. Because, and I think that's because maths is at the heart of problem solving, analytical thinking, all these kinds of things. So it's not just about, you know, STEM career. It's actually about just being able to, you know, problem solve, uh, uh, run a project, manage a budget, do all the things that you need as a life skill kind of anyhow. So I do think that uh, there needs to be more effort at understanding why girls don't choose some of these subjects at school. And, and fixing that very quickly. I actually think it's easily fixed. It just requires the will. But currently, I don't think there is the will within the education department to do that. I think that's actually a really good point Sandra and Chris have made. But I would beg to disagree on the will point. Sorry, Chris. I think it's, it's a matter of universities providing support for women to feel like they can go outside their comfort zone. Uh, and that was a big issue mm. for me as well. Um, coming from a, an arts background, um, embarking on something which potentially uh, had a lot of maths, which, you know, at the very thought of it, I would be um, close to fainting. But um, the, uh, the orientation of the MBA program was great in that they just said, if you look at numbers and you look at graphs and you go into a swoon, well, tough luck. You're just going to have to master it. And, and I think it was um, the, the dean uh, at that stage who said these words. I looked at her as a woman and I just thought, wow, if she can do it, I can do it. Yeah. And I think having that support structure, having uh, beautiful classmates, colleagues, uh, the extended network in terms of friends and family uh, who you know, provide little bits of support and, and it kind of they're all building blocks uh, for an individual, for a woman to be able to say, I can do this with the right skills, with the right support. Uh, so I think universities have a huge role to play in terms of not just focusing on the STEM subjects, but f 
focusing on um, equipping women with the ability to be confident mm -hmm. and to succeed at whatever it is that they choose to do and, and providing that that environment where they feel like it's okay to fail because they will have that support and, and they can succeed beyond their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So we've heard some really interesting perspectives, I think, from the, the panel this morning. And I'm interested now whether there's any questions uh, from the audience. We have a couple of, oh, lots of hands up. That's tremendous. Uh -oh. We have um, a couple of roving microphones coming around. If you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself uh, to the panel before stating your question, that would be tremendous. Thank you. Thank you. Um, good morning, Jill. I'm standing up doing the teacher thing. Good, <laughs> good morning, Jill, and distinguished panel members, and good morning, everyone. My name is Angela Evangeli Nuganakis, and I'm a, I'll use the word, I'm a teacher here at the Graduate School of Education, and um, I'm also the regional lead for um, ACU in the Teach for Australia program. Um, this is a prickly one, so I wonder if the panel would care to address this comment or question that I'll put to you, and that is, um, what about those women who hold peak positions, let's say, in CEO, CEO positions or chairs of boards, for example, who, and they are a minority, but who actively work to perhaps suppress emerging leaders in their workplace? Um, be it through um, a fear of uh, losing their own position or whatever else is motivating them, um, I believe that it is a real phenomenon. I have experienced it in a past workplace and the faith in myself um, came about the year after when I did become a foundation principal of a brand new school and, you know, with the board of directors there, progressed that school to what is now, it's, there's year 11s now. So um, I'm also seeing a repeat of history through one of my daughters in her workplace. So the question again is, what about those women who are in peak uh, senior positions who um, sadly, uh, inadvertently, whatever, um, suppress emerging leaders in their workplace? Okay. Thank, Thank you. you. Who'd like to start? Mm. Wow. <laughs> Well, I, I, might, I might briefly comment. I don't have any personal experience of that. But I find it really interesting that we know that many of the problems are structural and they're associated with the P word, the patriarchy. Um, and most of the people in those positions are men. And yet, we choose to focus on the few women who are problematic. <laughs> that, I, that's my only well, I was, yeah. all, all I was going to add was that I don't think that's a, a gender problem. I think there are many men who use their power wrongly sometimes. Uh, yep. you, know, uh, in, you know, that, that goes across for lots of different reasons. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure that's a, a gender issue, actually. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there could be a whole host of reasons for that um, relating to individual personalities or the environment that they're in, which perhaps you know uh, induces that person to behave or in a certain way or, or and protect their position um, and power. But I think if we kind of uh, look at that issue in a broader way, I think for for each of us, regardless of gender, it becomes uh, a question of 
having the responsibility to speak up and, and call out bad behaviour, regardless of whether it's from a man or a woman. And that's not always easy to do because sometimes it's about behaviour and many, many times it's about semantics. Um, the type of, you know, without being overly politically correct, it's, it's the sort of phrases, the sort of language uh, that people uh, in the workplace use every day and it's not easy to call those things out for fear of being branded as, oh God, you can't say anything around this person, you know. But if you're, if you and others are speaking out, then hopefully those people remain in the minority. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I haven't had a really first-hand experience of, you know, the type of woman who climbs the corporate ladder and kicks out all the rungs beneath her. Um, I think the systems are changing so that uh, the tokenism of the, you know, the single woman on the board is no longer tolerated. Um, so the bitches are about to be outnumbered. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. There are a few more hands up. Um, is there a microphone? There's one at the front and one at the back. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sue Boyd. I'd like to thank the panel um, very much for all your different insights and the evidence of work that's going on. Um, I would like, however, to remind us that this is International Women's Day and we've been very domestically focused in our discussions this morning with the uh, exception uh, of a little bit on the right-hand side. Um, this, the university has a fairly significant number of international students and we have this opportunity here, it seems to me, to influence what happens when they go home. And I'm just wondering if that's something that people are conscious of, if there's something that we need to address more directly, um, because it is international. We're not just thinking about what's happening in Australia. When the, the bottom line is, notwithstanding all the problems women here have in the workplace, we're bloody well off. Mm. When you look to the rest of the world and see what women out there, you've got women out there, girls out there, who can't go to school because they've got no sanitary equipment and they have their periods and they're embarrassed. Mm. You know, there's basic things that need fixing internationally and I'm just wondering if the university is thinking a bit about what its role might be mm. to address those inequalities. Mm -hmm. Fiona, would you like to? Oh, it's an excellent question. Um, I haven't really thought about the international students and them going back to their, their home countries and whether that's a particular opportunity. I think a sad reality is that not all international students do go back to their home country, so sometimes that knowledge is lost from their communities. I think what, what we certainly can do is we can support research that addresses some of those issues, and what we can do is support initiatives that are about education for girls and women globally. And I mentioned the really important work of, of Graduate Women, uh, which I think is often an overlooked organisation that does really critical work. But um, it's a very good point. I, I look forward to hearing more about our Athena Swan initiative, which Imelda mentioned. And maybe that's the type of thing, along with some of the comments that the panellists have made about um, the support for women when they come into university or attracting women into universities. I think there's some really good ideas that we could uh, progress at UWA. I would just add from, like, from a, a business perspective and really, uh, you know, thanks to and kicked off really by uh, uh, Andrew Forrest and his family, uh, uh, all businesses now have looked 
deep into their supply chain. There's still a lot more work to do all around this modern slavery issue. I mean, obviously it's legislated now, and I know even we're running program, and we're not heavy into uh, supply chains, we're mainly about people, but even just delving a little bit, it mm. throws up these uh, curveballs, and you go, does that feel right? Sure, it's a very low cost, but what, you know, what the hell is kind of happening over mm. there? Has anyone ever been there, et cetera? And uh, mm. I think that's uh, bringing great exposure to mm. these sorts of issues uh, in, in places like Bangladesh and other places that uh, often Australian companies are heavily involved with in their supply, own supply chains. Do, does anyone else want to comment? I mean, even on the international dimension of International mm. Women's Day. Um, I guess there's um, programs where you know you can get involved, like the UN Second Chance Education UN Women Program. Uh, but I think at an individual level, perhaps um, instilling in our international students that when they do go back to their home countries, they become role models for other women in terms of uh, furthering education. Um, and and with all and with all of the advantages that that brings, it's not just about furthering education to become a CEO or to, you know, uh, become a, a business success, but it, it's you know personal confidence, um, personal uh, uh, the ability to to bring communities together. I think um, perhaps that element could be stressed um, in our interactions with international students. No, like Chris, um, the property industry's main engagement is in the modern slavery um, platforms and uh, the Property Council has developed um, programs to assist property companies um, determine uh, their supply chains and uh, really understand all of the construction materials, um, windows, tiles, carpets, you know, mm -hmm. the, the sourcing and contribution of those, but that's mm -hmm. my okay. experience. Thank you. I know there was a question at the, the back, please. Good morning. My name is Ainsley Gatt. I'm a, a PhD candidate in the fine arts and my research is based on the success of women in the arts. But my um, proposition today is uh, not about the arts, it's about the business school. Um, uh, I last year graduated in the graduate school uh, certificate of business, and uh, which is a part of the MBA program. Um, the MBA program is a very successful program in Western Australia, um, the UWA one, but unfortunately uh, when um, women finish the MBA program and they go out into the workforce, they are immediately disadvantaged in two ways. The average salary for executives, uh, the pay gap is 20% for women, around about 20%. So when women finish their MBA program and go out into the West Australian corporate world, they will know that they are being underpaid by about 20% of what their male counterparts that they have graduated with. Um, so I put it to UWA and the business school that maybe they to, uh, could look at a situation where, for women, that there is an opportunity to um, rather than pay $55,000 for their MBA, that it is discounted by that 20% uh, <laughs> that uh, they are missing out on um, in the workforce. But it's not only that particular issue. Most of the people who go through 
university, whether it's an MBA or not, it goes on to a, they, they get a loan for it. So rather than finishing off paying their debt back that 20% earlier, they are paying, taking longer to actually pay that debt back to the government for their studies. So I, a proposition to think about is subs, subs, you know, making a substitute for um, their, the fees that women actually pay to, for the same job and not receiving the same income. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I love the, um, the innovation, thank you. So I'll, I'll just ask yeah. the panel to comment. Preeti, do you want to start? Because I know you've recently <laughs> completed an MBA. Um, I think you're quite right. The, um, the state government released their gender equality plan this week, um, standing together, and some of the statistics in there are startling. Um, WA has the highest gender pay gap, 22%, compared to the rest of the country, which is more like 13%. Um, I think um, it's not an overnight thing that can be addressed. Uh, but again, um, in addition to uh, policies and uh, systematic and framework changes, I think it's also about uh, upskilling our women who graduate from the business school and from other schools uh, to be able to um, have the confidence to walk into their workplace and to have that, what is often termed as a difficult conversation about, right, I'm here, I have arrived, what's my next move? Um, but by the same token, I do think education is an investment in your long-term success. Um, I, I don't... I don't think any of us should um, graduate thinking overnight we have arrived or we, you know, all of a sudden become a different person or are suddenly overnight more valuable. Uh, so I'd like to see an investment in our education as more than just that immediate um, reward in terms of salary. Um, but by no means do we not go, go there and ask. Uh, I think if you don't ask, you don't get. Thank you. Um, just, just a quick comment. On, on the gender pay gap uh, in Western Australia, and I've studied this a lot, I mean, it's largely based on the fact that uh, you've got more men in, in work occupations where the income is higher than women. So in other words, um, you know, you've got more male electricians, more male miners driving big trucks up north versus more female nurses and teachers whose average salaries are a lot less. Um, about 20% of the pay gap is where you've got kind of like for like. And like for like, uh, it's, it's illegal to actually pay a man or woman different to do the same job within a firm. Uh, and many firms have, have ironed that out. I won't say it's perfectly ironed out. But as I said, the pay gap has a lot to do with, with, with you know, the concentration of predominantly female occupations and male occupations. So you know, to solve that, you've actually got to try to get more balance in each of those occupations. Mm. On the incentive side, um, what I'd say is this, I think there's an opportunity to go, you know, we, let's say we think we, we want more females going to the business school or doing engineering, doing those sorts of things, and we want more male teachers. So, you know, I'd say give a 20% discount for females to go into some of those uh, unbalanced occupations and give a 20% discount to men to become a teacher. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. 
Maybe 30%. There's a, another question just at the... Well, there's actually a few hands up. Can we go to the back here, please? Okay, thank you so very much. Samina Yasmin from the University of WA. I've just been thinking, and I think I want to preface it with the fact that International Women's Day is my mother's birthday, so I always celebrate because mm -hmm. since I was a kid, she'd say, every woman has a right to be what she wants to be, be educated and do what you want to. But I'm gradually beginning to realize that there is a lot of focus on the rights on encouraging young people to recognize that they have rights, young women to recognize their rights. But I've just been wondering more and more since my husband retired a few years ago, that this constantly, every time somebody meets me, they look at me and say, you're still teaching? <laughs> still at UWA? And first I thought these people assumed that because my husband's retired, so I should also follow suit and go for holidays. And then I'm beginning to recognize more and more that there's an assumption that men can work till they are 80, but the moment women reach their mid-50s, people start asking questions about it. Is there an intersection between gender bias and ageism that would have impact on our workforce? And again, so I'm talking more about local, but I think it applies to other Western liberal societies where the gray power would increase. Now, I don't have gray hair because I pay a lot to get it dyed. <laughs> <laughs> but the rea reality is we have to think about it. How do we change the societal attitudes to say women in all backgrounds, all ethnicities, religious backgrounds, and ages have equal right to decide how they want to spend their time Thank and you. why, without explaining. So I just thought if there is any research or any comment, I'd love to hear that. Thank you. I think there has been some research um, recently around the discrimination against older women in the workplace in Australia. Um, and I think the sad reality is it overlooks the significant skills and experience that women have developed over a long period of time. So I think it's, it's really unfortunate that it happens, but I think it does happen. Um, but it comes back to, I think, the question of intersectionality, that we're not just women, we have all of these other characteristics. Um, and, and we do see these patterns and, and systematic patterns, and I think it's also about, about tackling those, but it's a really, um, a really good question. International Women's Day is significant for me as well because I have two sons and a daughter, and my daughter was due to be born on International Women's Day. Um, and I was very excited about that. She came late. She came on the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which is <laughs> where I have done most of my work in the past. So um, I share your, your love for the day and its significance. <laughs> uh, we'll take another question. And this will, yes. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for the lovely discussion. My name is uh, Dr. Sylvia Lozeva. I'm an academic staff member at the School for Social Sciences and also I'm uh, at the School for Indigenous Studies. And I have been to a few International Women's Day breakfasts uh, maybe for the last, I don't know, 10 years. And the discussions is very much the same. We hear the same issues over and over again. Um, I think the latest statistic is that we are 100 years away from gender parity. That's if you look at the statistics. 
Now, I don't need to, we don't need to look very far, but I'm looking for the signs of change, and that we have heard of it, some of them. But we don't need to look very far. One of the examples that I want to give is that here at this very university at UWA, 100% of the senior executive team are all men. And I don't see how we can shift that culture, how we can move that cultural shift, and how we can actually make a change where we are right here. That's my question. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Does anyone want to respond? Mm. Oh, look, I just think, you know, it's keep the pressure, rededicate ourselves to every program we think might work, um, challenge, you know, I had a colleague, a good friend of mine, um, and I discovered on the weekend that he sits on a board of the last ASX 200 listed company in Australia that has all men on the board. And I just, I texted him on Saturday afternoon, are you for real, like, you know, come on. And I took a bit of courage, you know, to send that text because I thought, well, I really like him as a, you know, respected friend and, you know, he might be pissed off that I would raise that with him. But you just got to go, no, you know, each International Women's Day, rededicate ourselves to anything we might think would work. Um, you know, we have programs being corporate environment, we have girls in property, we have 40, 40, 20 across all of our committees and events, um, you know, we have champions of change, which, you know, I realise is uh, a lot of men involved, but it, it changes the culture. It, it's slow, but it really changes the culture because young men look up to people like Chris and they say, what's important here? What do the leadership value in this place? And they take their cues from the leaders. So well done, Chris, and to all the other men who are still trying to change business from the top, especially. Thank you, and that seems a, a good note to, to end on. So please, will you join with me in, in thanking the panel for their insights this morning? Now, I'll ask the panel to stay where they are because um, it gives me great pleasure now to um, welcome Pauline Chihuahua, who's going to provide some closing remarks. So Pauline is the 2020 Women's Officer of the UWA Student Guild who's particularly passionate about advocacy for women and non-binary students at UWA. Pauline's already completed a Bachelor of Commerce from UWA and has been the recipient of Engineering Pursuit uh, and the UWA Business School BHP Scholarship. She's recently commenced a Master of Professional Engineering where she's specialising in civil engineering. So please welcome Pauline. Thank you. I begin this closing address by acknowledging the many Indigenous women of this land and others who for so many decades have spoken out locally, nationally and internationally for the rights of women and their communities. International Women's Day is a movement founded in the backdrop of protesting exploitation, condemning laws and traditions which fuel oppression and resisting ideas formulated in our formal and social education. For so many, International Women's Day begins and ends with a breakfast attendance a brief reflection on a skillfully woven quote and a photo pose with some artificially symbolic semblance. For me, International Women's Day is the one day I have an opportunity to succinctly give voice to the issues I and many women and non-binary students face 52 weeks, 365 days a year. That is whilst people still care to listen. It's an opportunity to highlight that if I reach retirement age, I'll be the face of poverty. 
that I am one in two women who will experience sexual harassment in my lifetime. I am one in three women who have experienced physical or sexual violence. That I am one in five women who have experienced violence by a partner. That I am the woman who will be murdered this week by a current or former partner. That I am uncomfortable with these statistics. And what more of the woman with a disability who will enter a job interview and have her physical disability judged as an absolute inability? The Indigenous woman who has been profiled and antagonised for much of this country's history. Gender discrimination is not a foreign concept which exists only in the highlands of India and in the lowlands of southern Africa. It is embedded in our constitution, in our institutions, in our policies. It's in the nuances of our language, the narratives told in our films and in our media. It manifests in the irrationality that is victim blaming and the imbalance of laws which dictate bodily autonomy. Should I continue? 2020 is a significant year for women's rights. It's a year of rising populist extremism which affirms regressive norms. The year natural disasters like the bushfires have shown a gendered impact. The year a second university survey will be conducted on sexual assault and sexual harassment. I couldn't help but wonder this week. If the demand for gender equality across our religion, across our cultures, across our industries were as grand as the demand for toilet paper, where we might be today. The work in dismantling the patriarchy doesn't start and end on one day alone. Gender equity expressed meaningfully requires more than formal working groups, administrative paperwork, and more than an accredited action plan. The pursuit for gender equity expressed meaningfully requires us to be uncomfortable, to check the sources of our privilege, and use our positions to dismantle oppressive systems rather than perpetuate them. It requires us to commit to everyday thought patterns and actions which challenge harmful norms. To make space for diverse women and non-binary people to take the lead. The pursuit for gender equity expressed meaningfully requires us to have university leaders who are prepared to explore how educational institutes can provide the opportunity to unteach and to relearn. It requires us to hold ourselves and each other accountable to be advocates and allies 365 days a year. Today is the opportunity for me to succinctly give voice to the issues that I and many women and non-binary students face 52 weeks, 365 days a year. That is while people still care to listen. Pursue equal. In your interactions, in your work and in your associations, there is still work to be done. Thank you.